So we're continuing our series in Kings, and really, if we were to give a uh, like a subtitle to the series, it would be something like um, creating a robust resistance or um, creating a counterculture. Uh, maybe maybe you're like me. I'm a little bit uh, concerned about the way that um, faith is being uh, treated in the in the public square, um, which is different than what it, the way it was when I was growing up. And I'm worried that we're going to continue going into a, a, a place and go, going down a path in which um, Christians and other peoples of faith become increasingly marginalized. And if that happens, let's hope it doesn't, but if it does, how do we respond? Well, the book of Kings and First and Second Kings really is almost like a manual for what that looks like. Because in First and Second Kings, Israel has been taken over by corrupt powers, anti-Yahweh powers against God. And so what do the people do when their leaders and their elites are against them? Well, uh, to catch you up, uh, Marilyn, I think I have the, the, the art picture of what we did a couple weeks ago. This is, um, it's actually the guy who, who uh, painted this was a friend of Martin Luther um, in, the, in the 1500s. But this is a, it's a, it's a depiction of what we talked about a couple weeks ago where uh, the, the prophets of the, the false gods, uh, Baal and Asheroth, they come and they meet up for a showdown with Elijah and Yahweh. And Elijah's by himself and there's like 450 or 800, I can't remember, there's a ton, a ton of prophets on the other side. And they set up two altars. And uh, on the one, it's the, they're, they're, Elijah tells the prophets of Baal, see if your God can burn this thing up. And so they're crying out, you know, I think it's Marcot, I can't remember his name of the, the, of the, of this particular Baal, but, uh, you know, show up, we need you to come down. Nothing's happening, and so they begin cutting themselves, uh, they're bleeding all over the place. Uh, Elijah's making fun of them, he's like, uh, your God is not that great. And then Elijah says, okay, this is enough, before you kill yourselves, let me show you what it's like, how it really is. And so Elijah sets up his altar, and then he goes to the next step. He dumps water all over it three times, uh, so much water uh, that it fills up the trench that's around the, uh, the altar. So there's no way this thing could possibly get lit on fire. And then when Yahweh sa- or when Elijah says, Yahweh, show us who you are, sure enough, fire comes down, consumes the altar, um, and the people of Israel who are there, they're like, the real God is Yahweh. Yahweh is God. And, it, and it's like this, this triumphant moment where Elijah has, has shown and God has shown himself through Elijah that he's the real deal, that he's, he's for real. And so we would expect, we would expect that this would be a landmark, a turning point in Israel's history. We would expect the people now to be like, we don't need these other gods. And the people who are, who are pushing them on us, we gotta stop them, we gotta rise up, rebel, get rid of Ahab and his wife Jezebel who are, who are trying to make us worship that which isn't real. That's what you'd expect to happen, but that's not what happens. Instead, Jezebel hears about this and then begins trying to execute, kill as many Yahweh worshipers as she can. And she takes a special interest in Elijah. She says, I want to make sure he's dead by tomorrow. And that's where we pick up the story. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba, In Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. 
broom tree probably means a juniper tree. If you've seen a juniper tree, they have like a like a skinny kind of, and then there's like a big wide canopy, like if you had a broom, only it's upside down. And the idea is that Elijah has uh, kind of given up all hope, and so he's just going to go find a nice quiet place, and there he probably expects to sleep until he dies. He's going to not have food, not have water. He's done. He tried his hardest, and, and it all came to naught. He's having an existential crisis. What's the point? He says, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Elijah sees his mission, his vocation, as, as pulling Israel back. As being like, this is the truth, and you got to follow the real God again. And, and he gives it his all. He's been working for years at this point. He's, he's spilled his blood. He's, he's, his blood, sweat, and tears. He's done everything he can. And just when it seemed like everything should be great, it gets worse. And so he's like, why bother? Last year they did a, uh, a survey of uh, 2,100 uh, different executives in English-speaking countries. That's the next slide, Marilyn. And uh, 70% said that they were seriously considering quitting. This is part of a, a massive kind of overturning turnover in, in labor in this country and in really the, the whole Western world where people are just deeply, deeply dissatisfied with work and they're giving up hope. It really, it, we, we think that the COVID was like the massive trigger for this. It's hard at this point to step back and remember what it was like for, you know, two years where this whole country was like locked down and it was crazy. Like, you, you know, it, it's, it's bizarre to think that it's all being, you know, just passed over as though it didn't happen because it was real. And during that time, uh, we saw this huge upsurge in people giving up hope. When they talk to these executives, you know, these are leaders. These are the people who are supposed to be, you know, making sure that, that the, the company goes well. When they ask them, why are you so down? Why, what, what is the reasoning behind this? They gave two major answers. The first was they were tired. And the second was failure and lack of support. And the, probably the Zoom thing contributes a lot to this because we all, at least those in the, the, the laptop class, went you know, they, they weren't going to work anymore. It was like you did your Zoom meetings or whatever, but you weren't showing up at the office. And this created a ton of isolation. And moreover, uh, what started happening is, you know, you're working for these corporations, but the stuff that you're doing doesn't, it's not really accomplishing anything because the economy shut down. And so these, these people started feeling isolated, started feeling like failures, started feeling exhausted. And that's because when we feel like we're alone, that increases our sense of stress, increases our sense of fear, and it's what leads to exhaustion or burnout. And we are in this country in the middle of facing a massive wave of burnout. Well, if you notice, this is exactly what happened to Elijah, right? He had these big dreams, and then he began smashing his head against the wall, and he worked as hard as he could, he did everything God expected and asked of him and had nothing to show for it. And not only was it, was it failure, but it was also a complete isolation and alienation. The people that should have stood up and, and supported him and protected him and been with him, they just disappeared. 
That is exactly how the enemy wants us to be in this culture right now. Not as business people, although maybe that as well, but, but as Christians, as, as believers, as people of faith, what, what the enemy wants is he wants us isolated away from each other, not trusting each other, believing that we're all not in it together. And then he wants us exhausted to feel like nothing's happening, like it's just, we're, we're losing. It's the first thing here, no cheats. The enemy wants us exhausted by failure and isolation, real or perceived. I add real or perceived because as we see, as we go through this text, we're going to see that maybe things aren't exactly the way we perceive them. Maybe the reality is different, and maybe it's not. But we have to at least keep that door open. Now let's just uh, jump back into the text. That's a couple ahead. Elijah was afraid and ran. For, no, no, uh, the ne- no, the, the next text. Yes. All at once, so he's sleeping, he's going to die. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank. And this, <laughs> this, is, a, this is an interesting moment. He's just been miraculously saved. And instead of like getting back in the game, he's like, oh, I'm just going to go back to sleep. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat. The journey is too much for you. So he ate, he drank, strengthened by that food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. This is a, it's, it's actually unique in all of scripture. This is the only time in the Bible that somebody makes a pilgrimage to hear God speak. Okay? Um, pilgrimages have become like a, a big part of, especially high church tradition. Uh, but it's very, it's, it's, it's only one time in the Bible. But what, what's interesting about this is, so Elijah's convinced that he's gonna die. He, 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 the angel of the Lord shows up, strengthens him with food, and at that point he's like, well, if God's willing to stick with me this far, then maybe there's more for me to find out. And so he goes to Horeb. Horeb, if you're not familiar, is the other word for Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is the place where God met Moses face to face and gave the law. It's the moment when it became undeniable to Israel that God was their God. God was looking out for them and God had a plan and a mission for them. And so Elijah, in, in, in despondency, in hopelessness, he's like, maybe if I go there, maybe if I, if I touch that land, if I, if I step foot there, maybe something, maybe there's a spark. I, in, uh, in the eighth grade, we took a, a, a trip to Washington DC for a week to like see the nation's capital and, you know, Monticello and all the things. And the, uh, the trip in my memory is, is a blur mostly, but, uh, there are a few things that stick out. And one of them is when we went and we visited, uh, Gettysburg, the battlefield from the civil war. I have a picture here. This is not the one I took. Um, but it looks a lot like the one I took when I was there. Um, this is of Devil's Den. If you're not familiar with the, the Battle of Gettysburg, on the second day of the battle, um, the Confederate soldiers overwhelmed this these rocks right here and began um, firing, having their snipers, their sharpshooters, firing on the hill from directly where this uh, photo is taken. So this photo is taken from the top of Little Round Top, which uh, Colonel Joshua Chamberlain's um, men were, were trying to hold the extreme line, uh, the extreme end of the line of the Union Army, and they were being peppered from this spot. 
my dad uh, was a huge history buff, and he instilled in me a love for history as well. And his favorite episode in all of history was the Civil War. And as I was growing up, I mean, time after time after time, he would tell me the story of Gettysburg, and especially the second day, the defense of Little Round Top and the heroism of Colonel Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. How this man, who was completely cut off from the rest of the army, had no, at a certain point, had no um, ammo. His, his, his guys were completely unsupplied. They had nothing left. And the rebel army keeps coming, keeps coming, keeps coming. And his men say, what do we do? And Chamberlain says, mount bayonets. And in this amazing moment of, of courage and commitment, the Union army troops charge down the hill. And all of the, the rebels who were based in that little den there, the Confederate soldiers, they were overwhelmed. They were exhausted. And they could not believe that these guys were coming at them. And that day saved um, the, the Battle of Gettysburg for the Union, for the North. But men, I will never forget climbing on those rocks. And taking the path up those rocks, the same path that the Confederate soldiers followed when they were charging the Union troop troops and looking around and, and just being physically connected to this moment that in my mind was one of the greatest acts of bravery and patriotism in American history. And in that moment, I, I, I felt connected to someone that wasn't related to me that did things that I'll never do. But I felt like there was some kind of connection to us and that, that some of what Chamberlain accomplished, maybe his, his character, what, what he, maybe some of that could be passed down to me. And that's what Elijah's doing. Elijah's at a place where he, he's, he's lost the will to live. What's the point? And he goes and he says, maybe if I walk the ground that Moses walked, the great prophet, the great leader, the great hero of the faith. Maybe I'll hear a word from the Lord. Next thing you know, Jesus, a pilgrimage is a very human way of trying to hear God now by being physically connected to what God has done in the past. There's no guarantee that if you visit the spot or go to the place where this or that happened in your life, or even if you go to Israel, that you'll have some magical experience. There's no guarantee of that. But it's certainly possible. It does bring up a question. If, if any of us here are getting to the end of our ropes, if we're, if we're at that point where we're wondering, what's it all for? Do you have a spot? Do you have a place? Another question, another way to, to get at this. When was the last time you, where were you when the last time you experienced the power and movement of Yahweh God in and through Christ Jesus and the power of the Spirit? Because maybe if you go and you, and, and maybe if you're, if you're up to here, maybe there's an opportunity to go and be connected again to the place where God moved. Well, as you may have guessed, it, it works for Elijah. 
Um, I, I've skipped a little bit of the text here. We're going to hit it next week. Uh, so next week, if you come back, we're going to hit the part um, about the, uh, the there's an earthquake and a fire and a still small voice. Um, but the bottom line is that God does, in fact, appear to Elijah. Marilyn, let's go back to the text. A voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? This is, by the way, this is exactly the question Elijah's been asking. What am I doing here? What's the point? And Elijah says, I have been very zealous for Yahweh God Almighty. And despite my commitment, despite my faithfulness, despite my unwillingness to compromise, the Israelites have rejected your covenant. Covenant, They've torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the last one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. The first thing to notice is, you know, Elijah has no fear about expressing to God exactly what's going on in his heart. The second thing to notice is that he's probably wrong. Just last chapter, if you remember, we were here uh, three weeks ago, um, Elijah met with Obadiah and uh, the prophet, and Ob- or Obadiah the steward, and Obadiah the steward had protected and kept safe 100 prophets of Yahweh. He should know that, that not all of those guys are probably dead. And yet it feels like that, right? That's how it is for us. When we get isolated, when we get alienated, when we get exhausted, it feels like, I'm on my own on this one. I have a little cartoon here. Um, this is the heart. It says, brain, look. And there's all these, like, I guess they're fruits of goodness. It says, good, 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 good. And there may even be a butterfly on top of the, of the, the fruit. But the brain says, not now, can't you see I'm busy? And it has a magnifying glass and is magnifying the one bad thing. We know that psychology, this is called negativity bias. The psychologists have done t- so many different studies on this. It's, it's fascinating how our brains operate. Uh, but our brains are absolutely love to get clued in on the bad stuff. They really do. And they have a really, really hard time focusing on the good stuff. Now there's, there's some advantages to this, right? Because bad thing like danger, if you're not focused on danger, you don't, then you could get killed. So there's, there's some advantages to, to this, but it also makes our lives extremely, it's very easy for us to get caught up in a, a false perception of reality. So for example, you're in for your annual performance review. Jeff Store is your boss. Is Chris here today? Are there any Jeff Store employees here today? Anybody? No employee. They're probably all working. Yeah, he's like, he's like church. No, forget that. We got to make money. It's cool, Jeff. Like that. So they come in, and Jeff, and he's like, Chris, I gotta say, you're an outstanding employee. You're a really, I'm really impressed with your work ethic. How how quickly you're picking up all of these different. However, sometimes I get the feeling like you're not super punctual, and that's caused a lot of problems. What's going to happen to Chris is he's going to leave that meeting and the only thing he's going to think about is the criticism. You're uh, speaking with a friend or a family member, a loved one. Oh, I love you so much. Our, our relationship is so good. Could you be a little less selfish? 
I can guarantee you, you're not going to think about how much that person loves you. Instead, you're going to be like, what have I done? Am I really that, am I that bad? And then what's going to happen is your brain, uh, because it's wired to do this, you're, it's going to, it's called perseverating. You're going to keep thinking about that one thing that was bad. And you're going to lose all, all sense of proportion, all sense of, of what's actually out there. And you're just going to be focused on the thing that's wrong. Well, modern psychology caught up to scripture. That is exactly what's happened to Elijah. Things didn't go the way he expected. I mean, honestly, like Elijah, like just one chapter ago, like just a few verses ago was like, ha ha, but God showed up in an amazing way, showed that he's truly the, the ruler of the universe. Like there can be no doubt that God is, that is, is, is real, that he's shown himself. And yet because things didn't go the way he expected, suddenly ah, it's hopeless. Time to lay down and die. And I gotta be, I gotta say, you know what, if you can't relate, you're not being honest with yourself. And so as we're, you know, encountering a culture that is increasingly hostile to faith, there are going to be times where the, the negativity and we're gonna start focusing on all of the things that are wrong. And we're going to have a really hard time remembering the things that are right. We're going to have a hard time remembering that no matter how bad it gets, guess who wins? God. Like, there's no, that's not in doubt. No matter how jacked up things get politically, no matter how messed up they get culturally, no matter how much we fight amongst each other, no matter how much we start to, to take our eyes off the ball, no matter how much that happens, God wins. And God, not is not only is he winning in the future, he's winning in the present. But we're like, and we miss it. We miss the huge victories that God's having because we can't take our eyes off the things that are dragging us down. The next thing in your note sheets, watch out for negativity bias. Things aren't usually as bad as they seem. One of the ways that this uh, hit home for me was uh, during the the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. You know, I was watching all the the news reports, just getting super depressed about. I mean, I had friends who were in combat, and it was I worried about them. You know, seeing how things were going and feeling very discouraged. And I was in uh, seminary at the time. I was in a class with a uh, a, a Vietnamese pastor. And uh, he had come to America to, to learn about scripture. And, you know, we were having a class discussion about the war and evil and good and how to sort it all out. And he, he raises his hand at one point and he's like, look, I don't, you know, as, as a Vietnamese person, like, I don't really know what's going on in Iraq or Afghanistan. I don't really care. But I can tell you that right now there are people praying for me. They have 24 hours a day. There are people praying for me so that I can become equipped so I can come back and continue the ministry that God gave me. And so I, I mean, I get that there's wars out there and there's things, but what really matters, what really matters is what God, where God's up to, where, what God's up to, where God's at. That's the thing we should be focusing on. I was like, testify. Let's finish up the text. Marilyn, let's go all the way. Next. 
Oh, you know what? Let's go back. This is important. This is, if you are caught in these, this, uh, the, the, the one with the questions and the uh, Philippians passage, if you are caught up in the negativity bias, if you're, if you find yourself constantly like outraged, if there's a lot of, you're, you're overwhelmed by criticism, you're, you're part of outrage culture. You love clicking on the things that show that the other side of the politics is the worst and yours is the best. Um, what is going to get you out of that? I mean, it doesn't get any more clear than the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about that. Tell your mind, no, the heart's right. We need to look at what God is doing and where God is acting and what is good and beautiful and real and true. It's out there. You might have to find it. You might have to look for it, but it's there. And yeah, the Google algorithm is probably going to send you to something that's not nearly as good. But if you go for it, it is there. Tori Grimm is here. Randy Grimm is here. And they went through all kinds of hell physically. And they're here and they're a part of this community again. Rebecca Stora is here. And I thought for sure she was going to die. That is true. That is noble. It's right. It's pure. It's lovely. It's admirable. It's excellent. It's praiseworthy. So, so God, um, God hears what Elijah says, and, and then this is what happens. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Notice that God doesn't say, oh, Elijah. Oh, there's no, because I mean, that's what I would do, right? When, when you guys come and you're like, ah, everything's, I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. God's not like that. God's like, dude, get up. What, what are you doing? Did you, did you notice, by the way, it took him 40 days and 40 nights to get to Mount Horeb. The reason is, is that, that that's the, the biblical number of like wandering or lostness, um, and so the idea is that he's having a wandering of the soul, lostness of the soul. And instead of God being like, Elijah, um, I'm so sorry that you're feeling this way. God's like, are you done? You've, you've had plenty of time. So now go back the way you came. Go to the desert of, of Damascus. When you get there, we're going to have a new king. We're going to have Hazael. And he's going to be king over Aram. Also, I want Jehu, son of Nimshi. I want him over Israel. And on top of that... Elijah, guess what? This isn't about you. Anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat, from Abel, Mahalah, to succeed you as prophet. Elijah, I'm getting ready to like end your, your, your times. I mean, you, I, got a, I got a whole bunch of stuff I'm juggling, Elijah. Um, and, and one of the things is you're, you may be done, but the, the job's not done. And I've got someone else who's going to take care of it. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael. And Elisha will put to death anyone who escapes the sword of Jehu. These guys are going to take care of business. I am not done with this yet. I know you feel that way, but that's not the reality. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all those who, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. You're the only one. No, you're not. I got 7,000. And more than that, I'm going to be wiping out the people who have been leading our people astray. There's a comeback coming, Elijah. 
in, in effect, he's, it, God's like, just calm down. Stop. It's not as bad as you think. And the, and the, the way I put it here is, you know, in our, in our culture, we're being told constantly that the most important thing is our being happy. Right? Like, the most important thing is that I'm fulfilling my potential and becoming the best, living my best life, um, is one way that it gets described. But, but really it's about me that, that this life is, I'm the, I'm the protagonist. I'm the lead actor in my life. And everything, every, all the rest of you are just playing, you know, minor parts. And, but really what matters is me. What God is saying is he's like, Elijah, it's not about you. And so you don't have to carry this. And no sheets, relax. It's not your story, it's history. Stay with it. Brothers and sisters, I mean, this is not our story. The the Battle of Gettysburg was not Joshua Chamberlain's story. The, the defeat of the, the prophets of Baal was not Elijah's story. It's all God's story. And so you don't have to, your, your measurement of success is not whether or not things turned out the way you wanted them to. Your measurement of success is were you faithful? Did you stick to it? Did you stay the course? Did you hold fast? Relax. One way or another, God's going to sort it out. Just hang in, do your job, and see what happens. So maybe there's some of you here today who um, you're wondering, what's it all about? Why am I doing this? I think what God's saying is, is I've called you to this place. I put you in this work. I'm asking you to just be faithful. And believe that I am working all things together for good. Believe that when I showed you how much I loved you by sending my son, that that, that this isn't the end. The story is going to keep going. And it's going to end up in the place that I have ordained it from the beginning of the universe. And it is going to be a place of glory, of goodness, of victory, of joy, and eternal peace. So Coast Bible Church, as, as, as whatever is happening out there, whatever is happening in here, let's stick to, the, stick to our guns. Let's just stay with it and recognize it's not our story. It's his. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we, um, we come before you as people who really do get caught up in all the bad. We come to you as people who are just crushed by criticism. We come... To these people who are racked with self-doubt, confused about who we are. And a lot of us, God, sometimes we're just wondering, why am I doing this? God, set our eyes on whatever is true and good and admirable and lovely and praiseworthy. Give us faith to know that this is not our story, it's yours. Give us comfort and faith to know that no matter how bad things get, the end is secure. You win. And we win with you. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.